0: Jewish audio on Kavad.org.
1: This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader of Chabad of in Thornhill, Ontario. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We're in chapter four, and we are going to begin Mishnah number four. That would be page 282 in the English and Hebrew. Today's teachings come to us from two sages who lived at approximately the same time. This is generation before the destruction of the temple. Fourth generation of Tannaim. We don't know much about them. This teaching, the first teaching that comes from Rabbi Lavitas, who lived in Yavne, this is actually the only teaching that we have attributed to him in the entire Mishnah. We don't know very much else about him. Than we know who his teachers and friends were we don't have many teachings from him what that would probably mean was that he was not a highly original teacher but he was somebody who taught what others taught Pirkei Ovois is really not teachings as much as it's sayings as much as it's inspiration not necessarily uh, halakha it doesn't deal with legalities or specific laws of Torah but rather a perspective on life and what he's saying is that encapsulated very important ideas of how a Jew should go through life successfully. So Rabbi Levitas from Yavna said, You should be very, very much of a low spirit. Because the hope of the human is but worms and maggots. <laughs> Sounds like a very depressed guy, doesn't <laughs> it? You have a low spirit because you end up in the ground. So I'm going to ask you to, to help us get through this. What is, what is Rabbi Levita saying? Let's take it from the top. What's the first two words he says? Exceedingly. In Hebrew, exceedingly is? Na'od, na'od. Or? Very, very. What does very, very mean? <laughs> what else does it mean to like a lot? What, no, certainly not a little. What, what message does it convey? Let's say, use an English word, a word we have in our language for something that's naod, naod, very, very. Maximum. Maximum Ultra. Ultra. How about Extreme. It's a very popular word today. We have extreme fitness, extreme makeovers, <laughs> extreme diets, <laughs> and we have extremists that we have to deal with. So, ma'id ma'id very, very means that Rabbi Levitas takes an extremist approach to this particular issue. And what is the issue? Shfa'ruach. What does Shfa'ruach mean? Literally, Shvela means low, Ruach means a spirit. So what does it mean, a low spirit? Depressed. I You think he says you should be very, very depressed?
0: No, optimistic.
1: That doesn't say optimistic. What, does, what is a shavar Very often, very often, the words of the Mishnah do not translate themselves easily. When you translate the words of the Mishnah literally, you end up with something that sounds ridiculous. Because the Mishnah, like any language, is not a technical, technical language only. It has a, a, a euphemism. It has a, a colloquialism to it. So you have to understand the language. Like when time flies, it doesn't mean you just take a clock and throw it out the window, right? There's a million, of books. Are they still popular? Yeah? Humble. To be be very humble. So Shavar Ruach is the idea of humility. A Gasa Ruach, somebody who is very arrogant. And a Shval Ruach is a person who is very humble. So the Levita Sishyavna says... That humility is a good thing. Is that what he says? That humility is a good thing? Yes. Is that all he says? And isn't that so original? Sounds kind of well-worn, doesn't it? Humility is a good thing? Do you think if I was wearing a collar? You know, the kind of collar. I was a Catholic priest. Do you think that I would tell you that humility is not a good thing? Ah? Huh? Not like? <laughs> you think if I was wearing a, a schmack on my head, a dishcloth, and my name was Sheikh something, would I not tell you humility is a good thing? I mean, humility is a nice thing. To say somebody's a humble person, even in hedonistic Western Canada, is considered to be it's a nice thing. Arrogance is not an exceptional virtue. People don't like arrogant people. People so say, oh, your friends <laughs> are so arrogant They're wonderful. It's not normal. People say they're so humble. So humility is a good thing. So what's Savalavita saying? It's this great big discovery. Humility is a good thing. Yeah. So is that, is that such a big thing, to be a mensch? It needs to be a mensch. Don't think you're better than other people, because you have to be a mensch. Sounds very basic. Doesn't sound very Jewish, doesn't sound very unique, doesn't sound very special. And the, the one thing that we have from the Levitas, if we have one teaching from him, don't you think it should be revealing? Something important? Do you know who this the single most influential person in Western civilization and culture? Yes. Continues to be today. Most people don't know him or of him. But he is, for all practical purposes, the single most dominant force in the culture that we live in today. No. That's not a culture.
0: <laughs>
1: you can mention it then. i give you a hint. It has something to do with Hanukkah. No. <laughs> Aristotle. Aristotle is the father of philosophy. It's true that there were other philosophers that came before him and there were great philosophers that came after him but Aristotle really transformed the face of Western culture and civilization. He was actually a private tutor of Alexander the Great and Alexander the Great took it upon himself to spread Aristotle's approach throughout the entirety of his conquests. And he had the largest empire that was ever built. His empire actually lasted for centuries and centuries after him because his empire broke in half. There was the, the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies which is the or the North African kind of up to the Middle East, and then the Middle East and the upper Mediterranean countries, which were known as Greece and Egypt, which were part of Alexander's Empire. And then that empire eventually, the Greek Empire was replaced by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire eventually became known as Christendom and dominated most of Europe and the Western world. And by the time the Holy Roman Empire fell apart, it was all more or less influenced by Western ideas or Western culture. Western culture, the father of whom is Aristotle. We live in a Western world, which also say, says Christian world, but the truth is it's not really Christian, because Christian really is just Western. It's the Greek and Roman traditions with a little monotheism sprinkled on the top. So the, the greatest philosopher would be Aristotle. And what is Aristotle's most famous rule? You know this. You don't have to have a PhD in philosophy. You know it. Did you ever hear of the golden mean? What's, no, the, go- what's the golden mean? No, no, not silence. Silence is golden. No, the golden mean. The golden mean, it's an approach to life. It's an approach to life. Interestingly, areas that were not under Aristotle's influence, but under the influence of uh, Buddhism, have the same concept, and Confucius also had the same idea. So really, all, all ideas, all cultures, kind of came up with this basic idea. The golden mean is... Moderation. Everything has to be in a balance. That's what Buddha taught. That's what Confucius taught. That's what Aristotle taught. That's what most people try to follow till today. It's very popular moderation. We don't like extremists. Extremists make us nervous. In today's day and age, the new extremism is is, uh, is uh, radical Islam extremism. And uh, only a little while ago, it was uh, atheistic extremism, known as communism. And a little while before that, it was nationalist extremism, known as Nazism, or fascism. So all kinds of extremism make us uncomfortable, because extremism leaves no room for anybody else. That's the nature of something which is very extreme. If you're in the middle, so you can balance this idea, that idea. You You can entertain different poles, different extremes, because you're in the middle. But if you take yourself out of the middle and you put yourself on an extreme end, you're only able to entertain that which fits into that narrow perspective. Does Judaism agree with the golden mean? Tell no. why not?
0: Because if you do what God tells you to do, you're not doing other things.
1: Why can't you do other things? What do you mean? Why can't you do other things? I think we do. If you you
0: observe Shabbat, then you can't do other things, right?
1: You can't do other things on Shabbat. If you observe Shabbat for seven days a week, that would be extreme. But if you rest for one day a week and work for six days, that's not so extreme. I think it's extreme to answer your pager seven days a week. I think it's extreme to answer the phone seven days a week. I think it's extreme not to have ever a time here. Here, here, right? It's a very old idea. It's called Shabbos. Shabbat comes, turn everything off. At least one day a week, you have to spend time with your family. I just a little balance in life. Shabbat is all about balance. Would I consider the Turikarta extreme? Yeah. yeah. Would you consider me extreme? Why not?
0: Why not? I have
1: a... Oh, so I am an extremist.
0: <laughs>
1: so, one second. Is it all relative then? Everything's relative. So then, so then, to your child who may come home and say that they want to marry out of the faith, you'll say, "Oh, you're such an extremist!" they will tell you. You think you have to marry Jewish? What's the difference? You think you celebrate only Hanukkah? You're such an extremist! You can't celebrate a little Christmas. <laughs> Everything will be an extremist, and then the next generation will say, "You think you have to do a holiday? Every day is a holiday. You're such an extremist! This day is a holiday. That day is not a holiday. Every day is fun." Of course I'm an extremist. I have a beard. That's so weird. It's so unusual, right? I keep Shabbos. That's very unusual. I refuse to eat something which is not kosher. Right? I live a, a, a modest lifestyle. That's terrible. I'm, I'm totally extreme. The truth is that there's something called subjective extremism and objective extremism. There's healthy extremism and unhealthy extremism. and I'm going to talk about that three. But the first thing I want to establish is whether Judaism believes in balance. The first thing on next challenge. You would say? Yes. Now, I want you to tell me why you think it does. Give me an example of where you see balance in Judaism. The windows. The windows. Which windows? Okay. The windows in the center. A is supposed to have windows. That's true. Okay. Interesting. So, Judaism believes Judaism believes that you can't become disconnected or, in, put yourself into a spiritual world we have no longer connection with the physical, or ordinary, normal world. Did you, you have the same thing in mind? Mm-hmm. What's, what's a, a, an easy example of how Judaism is all about balance? About Work six days, be involved with the world, and a seventh day. You know, Christianity presents itself as a very, very amicable, easy-going, balanced, tolerant religion. So, what's so easy-going or balanced about it if the ideal is a monk and doesn't work for seven days a week? Or what's so easy-going or balanced about it if the faith leaders are people who are not allowed to marry, who never have a family? That is extreme. Because it's, it's abnormal. It's inhumane to live like that. A normal human being has to have that part of his life. You need to have family. You need to have love. You need to have all of the things that go along with that. So to deny a person intimacy and family and love is is, is abnormal. That's putting a person in an extreme position. So, Moshe Rabbeinu, the holiest person, the one that was closest to Hashem, was married, and he had children. So we see this balance in Judaism. You don't find that in other religions as much. In other religions, the holy person, he's so holy, forget about it. He has nothing to do with the real world. Or a person is so low, that they can't even begin to be holy. Somebody's got to save them, and that's all. Or they do a token something, and then, oh, that's okay. But Judaism believes that each and every single one of us has the ability to have a relationship with God, to be holy, and interestingly, the holiness is not found outside of a normal lifestyle, but on the contrary, holiness is found within the framework and context of a normal lifestyle. So Judaism, in a way, strongly endorses this idea of balance. We talked about this only last week and the week before, when we learned the Mishnah, that was attributed to a sage whose name was Shimon Ben Right, we said Ben was an extremist. Ben didn't marry. He couldn't. He couldn't father children. He couldn't live with a woman. He was. He was totally disconnected. And Bob Ben was very much respected. But Ben was a person whose path ultimately led him to an early an early death. Right, his soul simply expired. He couldn't remain in this world anymore, because he was overwhelmed with his by his relationship with God, and becoming too spiritual. Just like the children of Aaron HaKon, Aviu, and Aviyu, and Nodif and Abiyu are not our load Stars, they're not our heroes. Our heroes are Aaron HaKon, Moshe people who live the normal life. And what did Aaron spend his time doing? Making peace amongst people. Not, not uh, offering incense all day. He did that too. But he was involved in normative life. The Rambam, my is, who was, some of you may know, was a great Aristotelian philosopher, as well as a great Torah scholar, articulates it very clearly in this book of Mishnah Teira and we records all the halakhas of Teira he says that you have to be balanced everything in moderation the Rambam even believed that most of Tzubizun most of the health problems people have are related to excess he says if you eat too much it makes you unhealthy isn't that funny that's what people say today
0: Rambam
1: Rambam, Rambam. my memories <coughs> This wasn't known 800 years ago, but the Rambam says it very clearly. He says a person should never eat until they can't put anything else in their mouth. He says that you should push away from the table when you're three quarters full. Moderation. You shouldn't be anorexic, bulimic, latching your brains out and weighing 84 pounds. That's not healthy. And you don't have to weigh uh, 400 pounds. You have to find a healthy balance in between. The Rambam talks very, very much about balance. And it would almost seem that the Rambam follows Aristotelian philosophy, except for one little monkey wrench. And the monkey wrench is about feelings of self, also known as conceit or arrogance. The Rambam quotes this Mishnah, and he says, the Torah expects us to be exceedingly humble. Exceedingly humble means that when it comes to gaiva, when it comes to arrogance, when it comes to pride, a healthy balance is not healthy. And that's why Rabbi Lovitas begins his statement with two words, a repetition. ma'oid ma'oid. Very, very. Very, very means one has to be extremely humble. One has to be exemplified by extreme humility if a person is to fulfill the purpose of Hashem's place in them here on earth. Why do you have to be so humble? Aristotle says a person should be somewhat conceited. And actually it makes sense. A person should be proud of what they accomplished person should feel good about themselves. Shouldn't be a doormat. Shouldn't be a shmata. You're an accomplished person. You have great achievements. Feel good about yourself. What's wrong with that? Every one of us wants to be happy. Every one of us wants to feel good. So, Krav right. Judaism is very extreme in one particular area. And that's the area of conceit or the opposite. Why? Why should a person be so humble? Shetikvash Kikvat, pardon me, Enosh Rima. Because what is the ultimate hope? Where do we ultimately end up? We end up under the ground. Where people end up. (laughs) Where everybody ends up eventually. And at that point, all of the things which people pride themselves on are suddenly no longer. Whether people pride themselves on their looks, looks don't last forever. People pride themselves on their fitness. People pride themselves on their wealth. People pride themselves on their talents or abilities. All of these things are evanescent. All these things are passing. What's really left behind? What's left behind is a spiritual accomplishment, spiritual achievements. When you raise children who walk in the path of Torah, when you forge your next link to Sinai, when you, when you live like a, a nice person, a decent person, a holy person, a righteous person, and you do acts of goodness and kindness, of holiness and righteousness, those things survive you. And those things live beyond you. And those are things that bring one to humility, not one to conceit, and not one to arrogance. and that's a uniquely Jewish idea this is what Torah says to us why is you so important why is this the one place where we must be fundamentalist and extremist where we can, there is absolutely no room for any compromise you know there is a statement that is made by our sages anybody who loses their temper who gets angry it says if they worship idols a strong statement. That would probably be the single most heinous act in Judaism to be an act of absolute and utter disregard for God is to pay attention to another deity. What, what greater act of, of treason to God than to do the exact same thing that you're supposed to be doing to God to somebody else? I'm going to give you a simple example that everybody here could understand. The relationship between us and God is also compared to the relationship between a husband and a wife. So a loving husband and wife have a special relationship between each other that's only for them. So what happens if somebody does the things that are only done between husband and wife? Somebody does it with somebody else. What happens? What happens to that marriage? Forget it. How can I trust you? How could you do... Now, if somebody does something not nice, a person finds out that their husband's a gambler. And they're very angry because that money was supposed to be for us and the kids, and you gambled our money away. Or the person finds out that the husband's a crook. The woman's very upset. I can't believe that I'm married to a crook, I'm married to a miserable person. Or that my husband's a violent man.
0: <coughs>
1: my husband's a drinker, he's a drunk. All negative qualities. But these are negative qualities that, by some degree, a person could have some tolerance for us. Okay, you have a weakness. None of us are perfect. What happens? Somebody comes along and says, oh, yeah, uh, honey, I hope you don't mind, but, you know, last night I slept with the secretary. Tomorrow night I'm sleeping with my business associate. It's okay, right? Don't worry. I'll be with you next week. Forget about it. You've yeah, got to be crazy. How could, how could you go on in a marriage like that? Why? So it's not perfect. So there's one little thing to do wrong. What's so bad? That's so terrible. Why can't you accept it? This one's husband gets drunk, and this one's husband uh, he has an anger manager problem, and the other one's husband has a crook, and this husband's a philanderer. It's so big deal. Because that's the thing. That's, that's our special thing. So if we don't have that special thing we share together, our relationship is empty. It's a shell. It's not real. So if it's not real, there's no marriage altogether. So let's say a person does a sin. Let's say a sin between you and God. What, what, what kind of sin? Eat something you shouldn't eat. Well, a person goes somewhere they shouldn't go. It works at a time when they're supposed to be resting. So God asked you not to work. And you said, I need the money. I have to pay my bills. God will understand. God said not to eat that sandwich. but I was so hungry. I was stuck in the airport. The flight was delayed because of snow. I was starving. Come on. God can understand. I'm really hungry. God said they shouldn't go to that. Yeah, I know God said, but you know, it was, it was nice and it was so much fun. Come on. God can understand that. So the truth is, in all these cases, we don't consider it to be an absolute act of disloyalty. When do we have an absolute act of disloyalty for a Jew? When a Jew goes ahead and offers the same homage, the same thing, the God-human relationship where I'm worshipping a God, a deity, instead of worshipping God, I go worship another God, idolatry. This is considered to be an absolute break with Judaism. That's why December is a very interesting month for a lot of Jews. A lot of Jews all of a sudden have a wake-up call in December. Why? Because the whole year they don't live very much connected to try They do all kinds of things. But for some reason to bring a tree into the house it's, it makes them uncomfortable. Why does it make you uncomfortable? There's no Shabbos in the house. There's no kosher in the house. There's no mikvah in the house. There's no Torah in the house. It's just a tree. No, it's not a tree. That tree represents I'm, I'm paying allegiance to another religion. I can't do that. That's all of a sudden a place where somebody says here's where I put my foot down. For many people Marrying outside of the faith has the same kind of feeling. For many people, it doesn't. Big deal. So, I can't be a good Jew. Maybe you heard there was a, 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 a famous lawyer. His name is Noah Feldman. And he's a graduate of, of Yeshiva University. And he married a, a Chinese-American woman. And he's very offended because when he came back to his Yeshiva... What do they call those things? Reunions. So he, he, so he claimed that she was cut out of the picture. And he didn't receive a Mazel Tov when he got married in a church to a Chinese American. And he couldn't understand why. And he wrote this whole article in the New York Times damning the Jewish community, especially the Orthodox Jewish community. How dare they not understand that he's a good Jew and he's a committed Jew and he is a brilliant boy. This man is brilliant. Very accomplished. Why can't they understand? So what if he's not married to a Jew? So that means he broke with God? It means he broke with Judaism? For many people, that was the last straw, you know, the famous fiddle on the roof. Everything goes, and not that, then all of a sudden he flips up. But another yes. generation, generation later, you know, we keep pushing the envelope. Mishka Feilach, doesn't matter, okay, fine. People don't even realize what they're doing anymore. But the one thing, the last thing a is going to do, I'm going to go and leave my religion? I had a story to tell about this atheist whose child got a scholarship in a Catholic university scholarship football scholarship whatever hockey scholarship no problem he goes off and he comes home it's December and he's just putting up wreaths. he says what are you doing he says we're celebrating a holiday he says you can't do that he says why not you said we're atheists he says of course we are there's one God and that's what we don't believe in <laughs> So the question is where a person feels idolatry. That's really the question. But idolatry, idolatry means when the same thing that you're supposed to subscribe to God, that same, that same type of homage you're paying towards God, you, you pay that same respect and same attention towards somebody else. This is a problem. When somebody sees that, when God sees that, that's a full break. And that's why this is considered to be the most heinous sin in Judaism. Everything else, a person had a tither, they had a lust. How did you eat that? I was hungry. How could you have taken that money? He needed the money. So a person feels overwhelmed by his desires, by his passions. He did something wrong. But here, it's, it's an act of disregard for God. What, what great it could it be to bow down to something else? Where's the, where's the lust? Where's the pleasure in it? So this is, in Judaism, the most extreme. And we find numerous d- details in the common human experience of saying it's ki'ilu. It's as if. One of them is anger. You got angry? It's as if you worshipped an idol. I am mean, not saying anger is a good thing. It's not good to be angry. You should be even-tempered. You shouldn't fly off the handle. But idols? Just because I got angry? Why? Pardon me, why go to such an extreme? So, Baal Tadeba explains in Tanya that the reason that we say anger is so bad and the reason that we say that it's like idolatry is because of what anger represents. So, somebody give me an example of the last time they got angry. You don't tell me what you did. Just tell me an example last time you got angry. A traffic, a traffic jam. Okay, very good. Perfect example. So you're in a traffic jam. You're late for work or late for wherever you have to be. And you're angry. You're angry that you're in a traffic jam. So, let me ask you a question. Who is in the traffic jam? You are. Okay. So, when you were in the traffic jam, tell me, do you believe in divine providence? You do. So do you believe that the fact that you happen to end up in a traffic jam is not an accident? It. Is it something that you chose to do? Did you say, hmm, I think I'll get in a traffic jam now. You didn't choose that, right? You ended up in the traffic jam. How and why did you end up in the traffic jam? Because there's destiny. Not everything is our choice. We like to think that we're all powerful, but we're not. What is what is what does destiny mean? Destiny means that God arranges certain things. So the fact let's say that we all met, or we're all sitting at this class, is not necessarily a product of our choice. If we come back next, week, <laughs> <laughs> hear yes.
0: this. Yes. An let's say, hypothetically, your husband is on a restricted sodium diet. And let's say you find out that he ate a hot dog when he weren't around, and he got angry because he's compromising his health are you saying that there was something got, I mean okay first of all first of all I'm going to tell you what you remind me of <laughs> there was a
1: lady who was interviewed being interviewed to sit on a jury and she really didn't want to go to jury duty who needs jury duty so she said you know I really really don't want to go to jury duty I'm not a very good candidate to jury duty and in fact I just want to tell you that I this is in Texas I really don't believe in the death sentence so this is lady relax it's not such a big crime this is a case of a man who came home and took all his earnings from the month, went to Vegas and gambled everything away, and left his wife and two children with no food for the rest of the week. She says, I'll sit in the jury and I'll reconsider my ideas about that sentence.
0: <laughs>
1: I like the question. Because you're really, you're going somewhere very deep and I, I'm going to get there. I, okay, let's first... That's what, it's really, it's, no, no, it's an, it's an excellent question. It's an, it's an outstanding question. I'm going to make an even better question for you. But well, let's first use the example that's easier for us to understand. The traffic jam. That was a perfect idea. The traffic jam. So the traffic jam is arranged by who? We believe by God. We believe in divine divine providence, Hashgachah Pratis. Hashgachah Pratis means that God is intimately involved with each and every single detail. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. I don't think it makes sense. Billions and billions and billions of details are all interlocking. You know that when a leaf blows off a tree here, there are thousands of things that happened across the other side of the globe that eventually led to this particular wind that blew a leaf off a tree. It's something that's beyond human imagination. The greatest computer in the world cannot have so many details altogether. There's got to be something haphazard. has got to be a little luck involved. No, of Judaism. No luck. Everything is choreographed. How could it be? I believe. It's the realm of faith. I don't believe there's a God. It makes sense to me there's a God. I believe that, that God is intimately involved with every detail of creation. That does not make sense. It is not a rational statement to make. It's something that has to be in the realm of faith because the human mind cannot comprehend of a system that can be so extensive. We just can't comprehend of it. So when I get angry, really, who am I getting angry at? God put me in a traffic jam and I'm angry about it. You understand? If you believe in God and if you believe that God put everything in its right place so then thank God. Shekoyach. Thank you God's putting me in this traffic jam. Hmm. Now why did God put me here? <laughs> this you really have to believe, huh? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard for us to relate. That's, it doesn't say you worship an idol. It says, ki Lu. Lu means as if. As if means something is very, very subtle. Very subtle. It's not actually doing something. I'm going to give you an example, and it's something that's subtle. But every one of you, I'm sure, can relate to this idea of subtle.
0: So you went out with your
1: husband somewhere, and your husband paid another woman a compliment. And you felt it was, how dare you do such a thing? How dare you pay attention to them like that? Are you an adulterer? He says, adulterer. Oh, yeah, I said a few words. <laughs> what did I do? So I flirted with somebody. Big deal. That's very subtle. Right? So that subtle little thing, it's as if. You could take it as if. That's an, a, 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 a disloyal and unfaithful act. True? You can understand the subtlety over there? So there's a subtlety in a person saying, God? Who's God? A traffic jam is here and I'm angry at the traffic jam. Something doesn't do with God. I'm angry. So you say, okay, fine. That's when there's no human choice involved. Because all the people who made a choice to drive out at the same time had nothing to do with the fact that it was a traffic jam. But what happens when somebody makes a choice? It's not destiny. Somebody made a willful choice to do something and that choice that they made impacted me. Like your husband weighed his sodium laced hot dog. Right? So then it's okay? I didn't say that. (laughs) I was asking. Then it's okay? Let's use a much more egregious example. Forget the sodium laced hot dog. That's not the biggest sin I can imagine. Somebody somebody uh, was uh, careless and they were on the cell phone, drinking coffee at the same time as they were driving, and had both hands going, and they were careless, and they broadsided you. And now your car has $3,000 worth of damage. Forget about being late to your appointment. Your whole day is ruined. You're angry. You want to pummel that person. Unfortunately, live in Canada, where it's not legal. You want to kill them. Right? So here's a very, very interesting and hard to understand concept. A person made a choice. Did God force anybody to make a choice? No. Are we guilty for the choices we make? Yeah. 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 That's the whole notion of punishment and reward, which is mm-hmm. one of the 13 principles of faith. We have to believe in these 13 principles that we are given the ability to make the choice and God doesn't force us. Say, God, I, I ate the non-cocious food. It's your fault. You made it smell too good.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it doesn't work like that. Right? Like the rapist who claims his victim was beautiful, so it's not his fault. Do we accept that? Absolutely not. Could that have been a factor? Sure, so control yourself. We have the ability to do the right thing. And when they have a very hard challenge, then you have the ability to overcome that hard challenge. That's the basic notion of freedom of choice. Every one of us has the freedom to choose between right and wrong, which is a difference, as we've discussed many times, between people and animals. Animals have no freedom of choice because animals are totally moved by their urges, by their instincts. So the animal didn't think, should I, shouldn't I? Wouldn't it be nice to bite my neighbor? But you know what? He gets on my nerves anyway. Ah, and he goes bites him. Can't say that. You could be scared of your neighbor's dog, but your neighbor is the problem, not the dog. The neighbor should, if he knows that has a dangerous dog, it should keep the dog on a leash. Or, or, or if maybe your neighbor treats his dog violently, and that's why the dog is violent to others. That's an idea It's talked about in ancient Torah writings. That's kind of accepted today. There are no bad dogs, only bad owners. But some dogs are violent dogs. That's what they are. So if you have a pit bull, it's a dangerous animal. You have a responsibility then to keep them under lock and key. Or to keep them on a leash. I understand you're afraid to live alone. I understand you want to be protected. That doesn't mean you should be careless about somebody else's safety. So we all have choices to make. And we're guilty for our bad choices. And we are righteous by virtue of our good choices. So let's stop for a minute now. Your neighbor wasn't careful about the dog. They made a decision, either because they made a decision to be careless, or it was simply an act of, not commission, but omission. They neglected They neglected, they, they left behind their responsibility. They weren't responsible, which is also a sin. A sin of omission sometimes could be as bad as a sin of commission. So a sin of omission. I wasn't mindful of somebody else's safety, somebody else's needs. And because of that, I got hurt. I'm angry at my neighbor now. So Torah comes along and says, listen, the fact that that person behaved inappropriately, they'll have to deal with that someday. Hashem will take care of them. But you should know that you were supposed to get bit anyway. Because I didn't make a decision to get bit. So if I got bit, it had to happen. I mean, if God ordained it to happen. Remember, was it my decision? It wasn't my decision. So if somebody's husband has shalom gets sick, then we would say that the person who ate unhealthy foods and caused himself to be into an unhealthy situation is going to be guilty because we have a mitzvah to take care of our health. That's another place where the word in the oath used. You have to be exceedingly careful about your health. And you are guilty. If you don't take care of your health, you are going to be guilty of destroying your health. However, even though you're going to be guilty of destroying your health, if my lack of health ends up impacting somebody else, the one who was impacted, who didn't make a choice to be impacted, so that was going to happen anyway. It's a question of who. It's a hard concept to wrap your head around. But if you think about it, it's perfectly logical. For example now, the Jews in Egypt. The Jews in Egypt. Were they supposed to be exiled and were those things supposed to happen? Yeah, we believe yes. God tells Abraham, your great grandchildren are going to be in Mitzai and they're going to suffer. So why the Egyptians punish them? Because they did it. They made a choice to torture people. You made a choice to torture somebody, then you are guilty. And you have to be punished for it. But that doesn't mean that whatever was going to happen wasn't going to happen anyway. I'm going to give you a very interesting example that I think everybody can relate to. A few years ago, my grandmother passed away in a fire it was a real tragedy my grandmother was wheelchair bound and there was a heater that was knocked over and the housekeeper who was there the nurse that was there was negligent and didn't do what she was supposed to do my grandfather was upstairs in his study by the time he heard it was very a fire that started like this by the time he came down the stairs all he could see was acrid black smoke and he barely got out with his life the fire department showed up 22 minutes later why do they show up 22 minutes later? Because this particular place of Brooklyn is called Gravenhurst. Gra- the Gravenhurst fire, fire station was closed for the day. They had a PD day, So they couldn't get they to get fire personnel from the next neighborhood over. It's like no, no police in the city of Vaughan. So you have to get police from this town of Richmond Hill. Or, or fire from Richmond Hill. And unfortunately my grandmother didn't make it up. <coughs> so, obviously... The family is angry. And who's, the, you know, there's two objects of anger. Number one, the, the nurse and the health care company that sent a nurse like that. Number two, the fire department. So my grandfather, he should live in the wells, is a, a well-known rabbi, and the same personality. He was in the newspapers. So I, I can't tell you if Bloomberg would have come to the Shiva anyway. But he came to the Shiva because he was terrified there was going to be a lawsuit against the city. And there should be a lawsuit against the city. So Isaiah just said this this amazing thing at the shiva. He said that when Hashem was giving out jobs, he called the angel of death, and he gave him his job. And the angel of death said, could you give this one to somebody else? Everybody's going to hate me. Who's going to like the angel of death? So God said to him, don't you worry. You will never ever get the blame. They'll blame the doctor. They'll blame the fire department. They'll blame the police. They'll blame the criminal. They'll never blame you. It's an incredible concept. It's incredible to be able to lose your wife of 50 years and be able to look at life like it. He said, listen, Hashem wanted to take my life away. There's nothing I could do about it. Nothing, it was a situation where I could not do anything. I didn't, he doesn't made a choice. There was nothing he could do. He came down the stairs, the smoke, he couldn't get to my grandmother. The fire department was away. <laughs> what can you do? Now, does that mean that the fire department should not be held accountable? What do you think? Of course they should be held accountable. And there's going to be a lawsuit. And hopefully, because there will be a lawsuit, nobody will ever be negligent like that again. But that doesn't mean, you know what, she was supposed to live, and the reason that she died was because the fire department was off that day. you follow what I'm saying? So, there's, there's a notion that we can accept what happened. We have to accept what happened. We have to accept the will of God, even though it's very painful it's very hard for us to do at times. But just because we accept the will of God doesn't mean we exonerate the person that's guilty. The guilty party is still a guilty party. Especially if there was an act of negligence. If there it was, it was 17 fires burning at the same time and the firefighters were engaged elsewhere, what do you want? Nobody was negligent. If here was an act of negligence, an act of omission, they omitted to be careful. <laughs> what are they assuming? This is not going to be a fire today. And maybe there wouldn't have been a fire today, but there was a fire that day. So that's an act of negligence. As an act of negligence, they are guilty. But that doesn't mean that my brother would be alive today if not for the fire department. If this was the amount of years that Hashem gave her, that's the amount of years she's going to live? Is it tragic that she perished in that way? Survived the Holocaust and died in a fire? Yes, it's a terrible thing. Was it very painful for all of us? Very, very painful for all of us. Is hard to still think about today? Very hard to think about. However... You also have to accept the will of God in as much as you are struggling. I don't want to take it to the extreme end without God, but you didn't yeah, follow what I'm saying, no.
0: right? <laughs> to now,
1: now is anger is anger then something which we're never allowed to exhibit? The answer is no. There's something called righteous anger. Pinchas, famous story of Pinchas, was righteous anger. Mesh Rabenu has righteous anger. What is righteous anger? Righteousness is a sense of indignation. When you're, when it, if, it doesn't, if you're not angry, it doesn't bother you. Which means if you wouldn't be angry about your husband eating the sodium-filled hot dog, you don't really love him. How could you not be angry about that? It means you don't care about it. I
0: was just going to say, raise your insurance. You can't be in control of
1: somebody else. But, but could you be angry about it?
0: Yeah, oh. for how long? And if you're not angry
1: about it, something's wrong with you. How could you not be angry about that? So, so if your children are fighting with each other, and one kid punches the other in the face, oh honey, that's really sweet, but don't do that again, please. Or you get angry, how oh, dare you punch him in the face? You know, I don't know, if you ask what my house is like, so we get angry sometimes because the kids are driving us insane. Whose fault is that? right? Uh, it's the school's fault, it's the... F- Maybe it's my fault. Maybe my good enough father. It's fault, it's
0: of normal
1: That too. Some of it's part of normal, some of it we're guilty for. The point, however, though, is that circumstances, when they happen, we need to remember that everything is ordained ultimately. And even the worst of circumstances that come as the result of a choice that somebody made by omission or commission, ultimately that was going to happen. So we have this notion then that if you get angry, what you're essentially exhibiting is, I'm angry at God. It doesn't work. You're not supposed to be angry at God. You're not supposed to say, God doesn't know what he's doing. If I was God, I'd do it very differently. Because it's not true. If we were God, we would do it exactly the way God did it. Somebody wants asked ask Alta so if you were God, what would you do? Al Reba says, if I was God, I would do exactly what he did because we believe God is perfect. Because I'm not God, I have different ideas. We can't understand God. So, when we talk about anger, anger is a form of arrogance. Let's talk about a different anger. Somebody did something to you which you felt was very unbecoming, very inappropriate. They embarrassed you in public. Oh, you are angry now. How dare they embarrass me like that? How dare they tell my friends what I did? How dare they do such a thing, make a spectacle of me in public? Why am I angry? I'm angry because, hey, <laughs> how dare they do that to me? It's really, anger and arrogance are close cousins. Maybe they're sisters very, It's an easy move from anger, arrogance to anger, and vice versa. Rabbi Levita says that a person has to be exceptionally humble. Why you have to be exceptionally humble? Because a lack of humility is saying essentially what? I am! I am! How dare such a thing be? I am! And Judaism says, "Me, you mean you are? <laughs> you are. You're here today, gone tomorrow. What do you mean you are? The only thing that really is is godliness. That's what really is. Everything else, here today, gone tomorrow. So it's not about self. If it's about self, then you're missing the whole point. The famous story is told that somebody once came joined the synagogue and got involved in Yiddishkeit came to the rabbi a few months later and said, I want a refund. He said, how come? It's not working for me. What I you mean it's not working? You've been coming to Shul? Yeah, I've been coming. Coming I mean, to classes yeah, It's not working. What's not working? So I can't define myself. I don't, I don't find it working. The rabbi said, I was always taught you come to Judaism to lose yourself. Everybody wants to learn Kabbalah. Kabbalah. It's like a thing. Why? Kabbalah. What is this Kabbalah? It's going to empower me. I'm going to be able to fly around, walk through walls, manipulate my enemies. You know, we have all these ideas in our head, magic. Everybody thinks Kabbalah and magic are one and the same. Because it's true that certain Kabbalists were able to do things that ordinary people couldn't do. But I can tell you this, that anybody who comes to Kabbalah because they want to become something will never come to Kabbalah. It will be a waste of time. Real Kabbalists are people who forgot about themselves and they want to know more about God. So if somebody's looking to become more powerful, or more spooky, or, or have more magic, they're not learning Kabbalah. That's not a Kabbalist. That's an egoist. The whole notion of Kabbalah, of learning the secrets of Teda, is that study that person who's absolutely, totally transparent of any ego. Also known as a Tzavik. A person like that who studies Kabbalah, they can have powers. God doesn't give powers like this to people who are into themselves. God only gives powers right back to selfless individuals. So, righteous men and women can bless and can make a difference because they're so righteous. And people who are not righteous are never going to be able to do that. So what will happen if they study Kabbalah? They'll flake out. That's what will happen. There have been a number of crazy people over the ages. Either you, you lose your mind or you're a very smart marketer and you make a million dollars selling everybody red strings. But either way, it doesn't make you holier. It doesn't make you closer to God because you're not really studying Kabbalah.
0: And what about
1: to Kabbalah? Kabbalah is Torah. It's not a divorce of Torah. It's not any different than studying Mishnah and Talmud and Halakha. It's, it's, it's Tader. It it's God's to Torah. Religion. It's God's Torah. It's a religious pursuit. It's God's Torah. So why should we study Torah? We're going to learn about that in the next half of the Mishnah. We should study Torah so we should be able to make a difference in somebody else's life. Either by teaching them or by acting out or by inspiring others.
0: So this rabbi also called rabbi from, Russia, from Israel, lecture about kabbalah I don't know who you're talking about. But I can tell you this.
1: I can tell you this. That anybody who's coming who's coming to teach Torah and is uh, charging people uh, whatever else it is and is gonna tell them they're gonna have be empowered and have uh, you know, spooky abilities and you know, come and get this. It's, you may be spending your money but you're not getting anything in return.
0: I'm not going,
1: That's not Torah. Yeah. It's not
0: Torah. But Kabbalah and the Judaism
1: and the Torah are all one and the same. It's different dimensions of the same thing. You cannot divorce Kabbalah from the Torah any more than you can't divorce a soul from a body. Kabbalah is the soul. So this is the soul of Torah. And the Torah, the is the body of Torah. Nobody likes ghosts. And nobody likes dead bodies. And if you have one without the other, you're stuck with a dead body, with a corpse, or with a ghost. And neither one is enjoyed it. And who is the founder of Kabbalah? The founder of Kabbalah, Adam Harishan started Kabbalah.
0: Adam Harishan. Adam al
1: Chava wrote a book of Kabbalah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Not a. Uh, um, the, Zohar. Okay.
1: the Zohar. The Zohar is the first document of oral tradition of Kabbalah. It was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai at the same time that the Mishnah was documented. Oral Torah was not written up till that time. So the Zohar is for Kabbalah, but the Mishnah is for Halakha. How many years ago was the Tsar written? Approximately 1900 years ago. 1900. 1900. So this is our Levitas' very, very important idea. There is a time when a Jew has to be an extremist. There is a time when a Jew has to go to an extreme, and the extreme is to accept that God is all-powerful. That God is in control, not 50%, not 75%, but 100%. Not that there is a power called me, and God and I are going to slug it out and see who comes out on top. So, I understand God, that's very nice, but you know, I'm here too. God says, please, I want you to eat such and such on such and such a time, or not to eat such and such and such a time, and so on and so forth. But today I want you to go into the silk tomorrow I want you to hold the lulav, and then I want you to listen to the chauffeur, and uh, tomorrow night I want you to light candles, or actually olive oil, and I want you to kindle menorah, and then keep adding another light. I say, well, wait, who is this God? I'm a little busy now, God. I'll, I'll light a menorah, be soon. I'll light a menorah for you next week. Where does all sin come from? Why does somebody not do something God wants? Yitzhara. what does the Yitzhara say? Why do you have to do what God wants? Maybe do a little what you want. I understand God told you this is not good, but you know for you it is good, so why can't you do it? If you think about it, all of sin is rooted in arrogance. If we are totally accepting, and we're humble for God, we're obedient to what God wants, and I say, God, what do you want? Today, tomorrow, I want you to learn a menorah. Right now, I want you to be learning Torah. In five minutes, I want you to drive courteously. Every, every minute has its call, has its what Hashem expects of us. So if we do the things that Hashem expects of us constantly, that's an act of obedience. Or an act of humility. And if we say, you know what God, I'm not having a good day today. Leave me alone. I'll do your mitzvahs tomorrow. What are we saying? We're saying there's I and there's God. And the I and God don't always meet. That doesn't work. And that's why Rabbi Levita says that the truth is the Jew has to be a fundamentalist and extremist. What kind of fundamentalist and extremist? Not in the way we go about life. But the fundamentalism of Judaism is that Judaism is an absolute. And if Judaism is not an absolute, then you're not living a Jewish life. Now, it's true that Judaism, which is an absolute, God is an absolute, Torah is an absolute, the ideals of Judaism are absolutes, they happen to allow for a lot of balance. The same Judaism says we should be married. The same Judaism says that we should have relationships with others. The same Judaism says we should eat healthy. The same Judaism says we should sleep enough. Oh, it's all the same Judaism. So, actually, if you look at it, it is a balanced life. It's a balanced lifestyle. The same Judaism says we should work six days a week and work hard. The same Judaism says we should rest. The same Judaism says we need special days. Everybody needs a holiday. And those holidays are special times, and you do special things in those holidays. It's balanced. If you look at Judaism, the lifestyle of Judaism is a very well-balanced lifestyle. And it happens to be that people who live a Jewish lifestyle live a better lifestyle. They're healthier because they rest more. They're healthier because they have peace of mind. The family unit is together because the family does things. Because Judaism legislates a family being together. All these things which we do, being involved with Jewish ideals, with Jewish observances, makes for a better, more balanced life. As a rule. That's a fact. But Judaism is not a... Relevant, a relative type of experience where, well, you take a little, leave a little, it's okay, it doesn't really matter. If you feel like it, it's good. If you don't feel like it, it's also okay. That's not where balance is acceptable. That over there, when it comes to the basic principles, Judaism subscribes to extremism to be extremely balanced. <laughs> in other words, there's two things. There's, 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 there's the ideal of Judaism, if we have to sum it up in a word. And then there's... the Practical way we live our life. So on a practical level, Judaism is not fundamentalist on a practical level. On an ideal level, the ideals of Judaism are one hundred percent extremist, absolutely fundamentalist, they're absolute ideas. It's an absolute, you have to eat kosher. There is one exception. If life is at stake, and nothing short of that, then you can eat food that's not kosher. You have to keep the shabbas. Fact absolute Even when it's inconvenient, If life is at stake, that's one time we're prepared to violate the Shabbos. That's an absolute kind of extremist thing. And the truth is that Judaism is very extreme. It demands extreme obedience. And Levitas puts it into the simple idea of obedience. You must be very, very humble. Can't be about you. It's got to obey God. Can't be about our own ego, our own conceit. Because the physical... All those things which we worship and think are so important, they're actually nothing. Everything physical essentially falls apart. Nothing lasts. The things that people live and die for, what? Fame, money, good looks. Things that people kill themselves for. It doesn't do anything, it's nothing. It's all passing. And the only thing that lasts forever is the Nishama. Nobody gets arrogant because of the nishama. Neshama, when you focus on soul and spirituality, it's not the path arrogance. And that's Rabbi Levitas' extreme take on Judaism and our relationship with God.